Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for being here. Welcome back to The Tully Show, and apologies for the unplanned, what was that, about a three-week hiatus. Uh, Why did that happen? First of all, because I couldn't get anybody cool to talk to me, but I think I'm on the way to rectifying that. I've got a couple of really exciting guests lined up in the weeks to come, fingers crossed. The other reason why there hasn't been a new Tully Show, because I've been working on this. I do have a butthole candle. Oh. I'm all man when it comes to the crust. Yeah. SpaghettiOs is a soup. Wow. I'm a man of many earth tones. Oh. I think Cheerios are still hot. Cheerios? Cheerios are hot, babe. Ooh. It's like an avocado. It's raw. The deuce. That's right. The long rumored, long anticipated, long overdue new podcast with the people's champ, Jesse May Peluso. The deuce is finally here. That was the intro to the show right there. In addition to Mark McGrath, Jesse May, by far one of the most favorite, most requested guests on The Tully Show over the years. I'm excited. I'm enjoying talking to her every single week, and I think you will enjoy hearing from us on The Deuce, which you can hear exclusively at a separate Patreon page we set up just for that podcast. The only place you can hear The Deuce is patreon.com slash The Deuce Podcast. That's patreon.com slash The Deuce Podcast podcast hope to see you there until then okay you ready to start this show uh your host of the evening is a really funny dude um i forgot his last name but i've seen him before he's really funny uh give it up for mike coming to you live on tape, on location, in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, from my nine-year-old son's bedroom, almost ten at this point, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and three-time champion of rock and roll Jeopardy. Hello, and welcome back at long last our dear friend mark mcgrath boy we're we're getting behind on the calendar aren't we here because uh where did we last leave off august 81 it is uh it's currently let me get this right it's currently november of 2021 but it remains september of 1981 in our hearts always will always will pivotal year pivotal year great to Mm -hmm. be here again uh always love talking music with tully and also i love hearing from the folks out there you know, it's interesting when you feel like you have a um, a love of something or a passion for something that's, ba- you know, banal at best, banal, banal, I have to say that. Banal? Banal. I hear that, I hear that sometimes. It wasn't even close. But, you know, you think it's something, eh, no one cares what Honeymoon Suite was doing in 81. And you figure yeah. out because of the glory of social media, you're not alone in your love for music, all things obscure, and all things, you know, popular. Look. I'm so greedy, desperate for terrific songs that I'll I'll take them wherever I can get them. And sure, my my likes and whatever are obviously to a great extent formed by the stuff that was happening when I was really little. But a, a great song is a great song, and if you ask me, I'll I'll die on the hill of truly great songs are getting harder and harder to come by. And I consistently am finding there's more new music that I've been adding to my Spotify playlist in the last few months since we've been doing this. That's coming from this stuff that I missed the first time around in 81 that I'm getting with all due respect to 2021 from 
2021. And if 2021 was cranking out the hits, I'm not such a bitter old man that right. I wouldn't listen to great songs if they were truly great songs, you know? But I saw a thing yesterday about uh, the biggest streaming songs of the aughts. And with all due respect to Kings of Leon, if Kings of Leon is truly the greatest the aughts had to offer in radio rock, well, I'm sorry, the aughts, you're no September 1981. I, I agree. And it's not like you said, the persnickety old man theory, like when I was younger in the music today, we would love to embrace new music. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one thing is difficult. We were raised, uh, and there was sort of a, a delivery system how we received new music. Now it's just splattered out there in the ether. You got to go find it. I'm not saying there are not new great bands out there. I've heard some of them. But having it uh, produced and consumed and digested and marketed to all of us so we can all sort of have a shared common collective of what is considered a good song that mechanism is gone. Maybe that's good. I mean, I always say about the internet, the good news is anybody can release music on it now. That's also the bad news. You know what I mean? So I think it's fun to take a look back and see where it all came from. And there is some good stuff. You revisit it. But there's also really terrible stuff, too, as well, which has been my biggest takeaway going down this uh, little release alley as we've been doing. Well, we'll have the good, the bad, and um, and also just the interesting. And here's something that y you might well have known this. There's a bit of an age gap between us, but I did not know this, and I find this interesting, and this is um, a piece of information that makes me like and respect Billy Joel just a little bit more than I did going. And I've always had a mixed feeling about him, and it's, it's the voice. I don't understand how the voice of Long Island can have a weirdly British inflection in his voice and i've just had to accept that that's just if you want to enjoy the billy joel music you gotta just accept that he the affectation is just part of the package here's here's what i didn't know so billy joel had been kicking around for a while right he was in like a two-man metal group right yeah yeah and i mean exactly. literally wearing animal skins on the cover Long of an album yep. standing in a cave like you yeah. it's exactly what you think it is like a and man of war 8x10 it really is like <laughs> imagine billy joel as the the, the proto man of war and that's what he was doing i can't remember what they were called primal or either i'm mad at myself but havoc yeah. or whatever the hell they were called and it doesn't work, and he gets dropped from the label, and he parts, splits with his animal skin-wearing friend, and he goes and he plays music in a piano bar, and he writes Piano Man, and he slowly builds himself back up. And I love the story and respect the hell out of anybody who gets the major label deal the second time and makes it stick yeah. the second time. It's why I'll never, I'll never shit on Maroon 5, for that, if, if only for that reason. But he does it, and he makes his way back, and he finally has some hits and now it's the time in the cycle to do the live album. And what does everybody do? Greatest Hits Live. It's money in the bank. You can't go wrong with that in late 70s, early 80s. Billy Joel says, no, I've been making quality music for some time now, and you all are just figuring that out. So when Billy Joel puts out the perfunctory live album, all it is is live songs that were on his previous albums that had not hit. And Billy Joel ends up having hit songs with live versions of, of songs that he had put on earlier unheralded albums. I'm assuming you sort of knew that. I, I was definitely aware of that. Um, but what's incredible at that, it just shows you the extreme talent of Billy Joel. Because they didn't have the sweetening they have now in terms of live recording. They didn't have the Pro Tools and all that. I mean, Billy Joel is such a supreme talent. 
What I'm a little bit confused about is the British affectation. Am I missing something? Can you give me an example of that? To me, it's like bottle of red, bottle of white. Bottle of white. Okay, well, let's listen to this together. Maybe British okay. isn't what it is. Uh, no, no, okay. no, it's just you have an idea because to you, that's that's the whole like sort of thing that taints your Billy Joel fandom. And yeah. I, I, I mean, is it next wave, new wave, dance? I, I, I don't know. Where the, I've never heard it. And now I'm, I'm curious to, if I'm going to hear it now forever. Okay, so listen to this. I, I never realized when I was a kid and these songs were on the radio that these, these hit songs were live recordings. And they had not been hits prior to that. She's Got Away, that version everybody knows. That's, that's incredible. A, that's a live version of that song because the album version hadn't done anything. This song also from Songs in the Attic, released in September of 1981. Okay, I'm not going to... That's that's a stunning vocal performance on that. You hear the vibrato? That's all I heard was vibrato. When I think of Billy Joel, I, I mean, that's such an amazing compliment. You can I, I love the bands that have so many hits, the artists that have so many hits that I could sit here all day and name Billy Joel hit songs, and I don't know that Say Goodbye to Hollywood ever comes to mind. I completely agree, and it's a gigantic hit. It's a gigantic yeah. hit song, and not just a gigantic. He had some gigantic hit songs that were not particularly good songs. That's a an amazing song, and also when I think of all of the skills that I think of Billy Joel bringing to the table, uh, like elite level vibrato, I, that also never comes to mind. And yet, that's that's Chrissy Hind shit he's doing there. Oh yeah, and, and like you said, it's effortless, and he's got a lot more in the reservoir. That's always a sign of a great singer. You know, he's not straining. He's got such control of when that stops and ends, and the intervals between the say goodbye to Hollywood. You know, he knows exactly how long that's gonna last. Uh, it's incredible. I also, and you know what, I healing. We did this a little while ago. There's a huge Bruce Springsteen quality too in a lot of his. If you yes. look at those verses, God, troubadour, you know, there's, there's, yes. and we, we went through down the Bruce Springsteen path a while ago, and I don't think we included Billy Joel in that. It was a huge part of that. No, no, we, we did not, and I, first of all, it just didn't occur to me, but secondly, now that you mention it, I kind of don't know where one ends and the other yeah. begins, and to what, to, to what extent is it shared influence, and to what extent is it picking up something from the guy who's across the bridge from you. Was it right. something that was weirdly in the air or, or was it not? Or, or, or was one of them borrowing from the other? Cause in that case, I get Bruce hit first. You got to say that's yeah. Bruce's thing before it's Billy Joel's thing. But you, we, we were going over, remember that Eastern seaboard phenomenon? We oh, said yeah. outside Johnny and a lot of those guys were doing that, you know, that, that sort of uh, that affectation of Bruce Springsteen. So it's just, you know, who came first, the chicken or the egg? So that was a very stylized thing that came out of that area because they were doing that bit of a uh, that circuit. You'd go up to New Hampshire, you'd play down all the way to D.C. And they all played the same little juke joints along the way. So I think you're right. A, a culture and an aesthetic, certainly a songwriting aesthetic was developed out of a, kind of a, a sing shared, you know, community they were developing. 
Yeah, there's no doubt that those guys uh, crossed paths uh, touring before the rest of us were aware of them. So we've talked about progressive rock a little bit in the past, and I don't think it's either of our bags, and I don't know why it's really anybody's bag anymore, with all due respect. But these bands are still kicking around, and they're still trying to make it, and they don't know, maybe they do, maybe they don't know that they are on borrowed time, and King Crimson has put out an album in September of, I don't even know, like I couldn't name a single song by King Crimson, they're just one of those Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, they're just one of these groups that you know is a part of that thing. And like, like it's one of those things you can't say you don't like King Crimson. I like, will. you know, if you're a musician, I know you will. That's why yeah. I love you. <laughs> No, you know, it's like it's like when uh, someone reviews a Bob Dylan record. It's always yeah. five stars, and you don't yeah. understand it and forget it. You know, it's just like King Crimson is an amazing – like, the musicians are incredible. They're doing crazy stuff, but so is Les Claypool from Primus. You know what I mean? So I, I, I don't I, – I'm like you. The prog rock, just for prog's sake, never spoke to me. Give me, give me you know, three chords and the truth, and I, I'm in. You know? Right, right, right. So I play this to set up the next thing, but just for the time being – King, King Crimson in 1981, partying uh, like it is very much still 1976 <laughs> off of the Discipline record. Here's Frame by Frame. Oh, you get the idea. It's just dissonant noise, you know, and it's like one of those things, oh, you don't understand it. You're not a musician. The timing's so off that it's on, yeah. and the guitars are slightly bent, and the, the, the tuning's weird. I mean, that, that's great. And for musicals that love that, God bless you, that's just never spoken to me. I will say one thing that just occurred to me listening to that back. There's, um, there's a couple of decent synchronicity era police songs in yeah, there for sure. in there somewhere now, adrian blue had a huge influence on andy summers for sure you have to you have to say that um there's one there's a song by king crimson that made it to k-rock uh-huh. again the k-rock phenomenon it's, like, sure. it's all right get a hold of yourself you can't fight it do, do you remember that is that is that not, nothing so, i actually enjoyed that song and i bought the 12 minutes so i have a king crimson uh merchandise product in my uh, arsenal so i have to i have to confess to that but that's uh that was my only you know and i think i was buying that just to kind of be cool and have it in my collection because that's what you did back then you know with record collections because people would look through them when they came to your house sure yeah yeah no, it's like having a, a yeah a book on your shelf that you were never actually gonna exactly. read. yeah yeah, yeah. i know i knew i knew i knew a guy who used to he kept a he had a bjork poster on his wall strictly because I, I heard the girl after a girl go, Oh, you like Bjork? I mean, right. I'm That's too like a cool. Safe space. Yeah, like I'm too, safe space. Which, which is to say, no, it absolutely was not. He was a sociopath who right. knew what he was doing there. So, look, here's why I play. I probably wouldn't even played King Crimson, but. That's the sound of prog rock that's not changing. In that same month, September of 1981, Genesis releases the Abacab record. And now I am—I have a very soft spot. The first record I ever got into was Invisible Touch. I even like the song Invisible Touch. And I tell you what, I have been weirdly obsessed with watching um, YouTube videos of Genesis is on a farewell tour, and this one I truly believe is a farewell tour. Oh because yeah, 
Yeah. Phil's Phil's struggling, but it, when you're sitting down for the entire show, it's your last tour. You yeah, it, I mean? it, it even is. though he did that last tour, I believe. I think he was sitting on. I think it was just him, not Genesis. Solo. That's right. Yeah, and he, he's had to cancel a few shows. So, do you know what's wrong with him? By any chance, do you know what the affliction is? I don't know in terms of illness. There's there's back surgeries, and everyone heard about where he was playing there, and they had to tape the sticks to his hands because they didn't have any feeling in his oh, fingers. Um, yeah. and it's it's just very it's sort of touching in a way. I think I, I've I've had I've really thought about it quite a bit. My wife makes fun of me because every time she comes in our bedroom at night, I'm still sitting there watching more live Genesis <laughs> videos. I think because he never had the arrogance and the presence and the pomposity of a larger than life figure, it's not as sad to watch. He's he was just always a normal guy, and now he's like a normal old guy. And when he hits the note, you go, ah, oh, Phil got that one. And when this is it, you go, ah. He, you know, he's just he's yeah. just saying goodbye to everybody. And you know what you else? You're rooting for him. You're rooting for him. You're you rooting know? for him. And what's cool is um, his son is is playing drums, and his son looks yes. quite a bit like him. And his son's doing a very very nice job with it. So you have this weird, super youthful vision of him doing his drum parts over his shoulder the whole time. I don't know. I get very emotional watching these things. No, that's very sweet. It's like you know, Glenn Frey's son took over his role in the Eagles. I mean, I yeah. think people really respect that that there's like the DNA of yeah. what you're trying to see is still up there. Though Phil Collins, don't get it twisted, has a massive ego. Go look <laughs> through all Phil Collins' solo records. There are giant pictures of his face. Yeah. Go on Wikipedia right now and Google his images of his solo records. It's all shot of his face. So I don't know if he thought he was a looker or what, but uh, he certainly had a little bit of ego, man. You know, he, he had to because he was so talented, man. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, and people did respond to him in his lovable, uh, scampy sort of way. He has had numerous guest roles on uh, on Miami Vice, and he even starred in a in a movie. Like What's that Bust movie? Was Is it like Buster? That? Buster, like the, the return of Buster or something. Yeah, He's like a cat burglar or something like that. So he did have this weird anti-charm thing going on. Yeah. Um, he was the anti-sex appeal guy. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And and he did that fun thing when he when they reissued his albums. You're talking about how he had his face on the cover of everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, he went and retook, he recreated all those. So when the reissues <laughs> came out, it was the exact same pose, but it's him like 30 years older. Oh, that I respect. Now, yeah. that, now that, that, that makes me, I didn't know that. So that makes me like, Maybe maybe this was a long play joke he'd started years ago, which makes me like him more. <laughs> so Genesis, I read Mike Rutherford's book, The Guitar Player of Genesis, and I really wanted more than anything for him to address the blatant left turn that they took in the 80s when they realized that they, they could not or would not, whatever, be a prog rock band anymore, and that... Phil was this golden pop idol, and to just make their songs... 75% Phil Collins pop songs and 25% Genesis instrumentation, just so you could kind of tell the difference between that and a Phil solo album. And instead the, the book is about as subdued and dare I say, uninteresting as the man himself, Mike Rutherford, he just sort of said, and then we went back in the shed and made some more demos. And then we made another album and nobody yeah. has been able to explain to me why um, s starting right around 1981, Genesis, a prototypical prog rock band a la King Crimson, a la all the rest of them, starts making rapturously joyous pop music like this.
Well, let's be honest. That's intelligent pop music. You know, there's what I mean? a lot there's, of stuff going on there. There's signatures changing in there, yeah. and there's you know horn stabs. So if that is them selling out to the pop world, well then you know kudos to them. I think, Mister Tully, if I could be so bold, they probably were at a crossroads. Or Phil Collins said, "Listen, I'm tired of prog business. I'm either going to go on my own." Yeah, and do I mean what came first, Phil Collins' solo record or the Genesis turn into pop? I mean, I think that's that's kind of a, that, that I would like to look at that. That's a good question. He may have started putting out solo stuff because I think this may even be uh, after uh, Against All Odds. Take a look at me now. Against and All also, Odds was '83. I know okay. that, but you okay. can't hurry. Love was maybe maybe the can't hurry love. Yeah, he did that 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 cover. I want to say that was like '82 ish. So. I think Phil might have said, listen, fellas, I want to go this direction or I'm out and you can go become Mike and Mechanics even though you don't know that yet. You know? Right, right, right. Well, and worth noting in all of this, Phil Collins was not a founding member of Genesis, I don't think. I think they'd had an, a different drummer. So he's just a guy who's from whatever town in, in England and he gets a gig playing with a band that plays arenas and he takes it. Doesn't necessarily, you know. Dave Grohl turns out musically his soul was living somewhere different than Nirvana the whole time. Uh, when Peter Gabriel leaves the band and leaves the rest of them holding the bag, that's when Phil goes, well, I sing a little bit. So maybe <clears throat> if he had never gotten the gig in Genesis, he never would have been a prog rock guy in the first place. Yeah, that might not be where his heart was at. But like you said, it's a great gig. Let me join an arena. Uh, built, band's already built, ready to go. And then as his influence got a little stronger... And the band probably saw what a talent they had. They said, let's see where we go with this. You know, they, they were prog rocking all through the 70s. It was time to, like, take a dip in the top 40 pool, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I That record, Abacab, is, um, it's, got some, it's untouchable. It's got some really terrific, terrific songs on it. Now, Love it. And like you said, dude, I'm not a prog guy. I would say well, Genesis is probably the most successful prog rock band if you're going like, to paint them with that brush. Of all time? Oh, my God. They, there's no doubt about it. I, you know, the other yeah. people who come to... I don't know. If, Pink Floyd's not a prog rock band, right? No, not by no. The, but, yeah. but they but are. They flirted with it originally. You know, so that, that's actually a good call. So it's close. If you, if, if you look at it that way, if we're counting bands that used to be prog rock as still prog rock, then Pink Floyd obviously dwarfs Genesis as successful as they were. But if you're talking about bands who were big doing the prog thing... You know, Asia had some moments. Europe had Asia some moments. It. Dream Theater yep. have had a nice career for themselves. Yes, messed around a little bit of Proggy. They had Proggy for a while. For know? sure. So I for think sure. that, like, you know, success just caught up with Pink Floyd. I think they were still trying to do prog rock. I don't think they were trying to, you know, try, I don't think they were trying to hit for home runs with us and them. You know what I mean? I think we just caught up to it with a whole lot of acid, too. Yeah, that's right. The acid definitely did help. Um, I knew that as much as we think of Hall & Oates as a consummate 80s hit maker, obviously I was aware of the fact that they had released music in the 70s and they'd had hits. Sarah Smile was a big hit for them. Um, I, I was pretty shocked to learn that the album Private Eyes was their 10th studio yeah. album. Yep, yep. Wow. Also back in the days when there, there was called an A&R department. Yeah. They would sign a band knowing full well they weren't developed, but there was something there. They'd get three, four, five chances. Bruce Springsteen did. Fleetwood yeah. Mac did. Yeah. All the notes did, you know? Yeah. And so it was, I mean, the the real hit run 
begins, I would say, with with private eyes, and, and it goes all the way for about for about five years. And uh, there's a couple of uh, let me see, Family Man, One on One, Man Eater. Kiss on my list. What? Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. No, no, no. I'm looking at a greatest hits album. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, hold on. Hold on a second. Anyway, there's at least a couple of hit songs on uh, this album, including this one right here. Actually, an atypical, it's both a prototypical and atypical Hollow Notes song. I read something about that recently where he said he'd, um, this is Daryl Hall, had gotten his hands on what was then a very modern drum machine and like bass sequencer. And basically the very first, he like turned it on and hit two buttons and that beat and oh, bass line started oh, going. Oh, 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 and he oh, was oh. just like, okay, 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 okay. This is, this is clearly oh, a song. Oh, record, yeah. push play, hurry up. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's so funny, and this has been the takeaway from 81, that production sounds fresh today. There are so many releases from 81 that sound like they're released in 51. So like you said, he found this new like synth or whatever he was dealing with, and it, that, that discovery gave them the next 10 years of hits. You know what I mean? They were only going to get bigger. So what an interesting addition and integration into their sound coming from She's Gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Coming from, uh, you know, Sarah Smile, which were straight up, you know, Sax Records, Philadelphia, Philly Sound, you know, R&B jams, which they were arguably taking a turn towards New Wave right here. You know, they really did. Yeah, 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 absolutely, positively. Although I do find, as modern as it sounds in certain ways, whenever, and this is real inside baseball, but when a vocalist had chorus on their voice, or flanger, basically the same thing, but no delay or reverb whatsoever that was a real particular you'd catch phil collins doing that right around that same era too that that belongs if anybody does that nowadays they're just shameless it's like when somebody puts the slapback echo on their voice it doesn't matter that that's been a thing that recurs in rock and roll you're doing classic rock and roll if you're john lennon doing that in 79 you're doing 64 when you do that yeah. That's, a, that's an extremely 80s effect. That's, I know as somebody who used to own a couple of Roland beginner guitar amps, I know that <laughs> I know that setting all too well. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I think it was like, I think there's only one setting in those jazz. <laughs> that's exactly uh, right. But, uh, you know, so I, I love that song. I love yeah. it. I just, I remember being young and hating when he goes, no can do. I just, I don't know why that's bothered me. No, no can do. I do I, and, and it still bothers me to this day. And it taints the song just a little bit. The song's so great, I can get through it. I um, just wanted to share that little personal side. No, 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 no. I think you you point to a larger thing, which is I have sort of like Billy Joel. I have a complicated relationship with Daryl Hall's voice. <laughs> Daryl Daryl Hall, like Billy Joel, was a, maybe a little bit more in love with his voice than his actual. Um, in in the case of Daryl Hall, I hate to say it, than his actual prowess and his actual chops allowed for. He was never quite the great soul front man that he imagined himself to be. A great soul songwriter, a great soul song maker, yes, 
not. Boy, that that is so on the money. And I love Daryl Hall, but you know when he changes the phrasing a little bit? Oh, uh, yeah. Him live, uh, and you're like, nah, man, that didn't work, you know? Yeah. Boy, that, but, you know, I've been trying to articulate and put a thought in my head about that very thing for 30 years. It just synthesized it all in 10 seconds for me, Tully. Thank you. When that live at Daryl's house thing was like an early internet oh, yeah. hit and yeah. everybody just couldn't. And, and and part of it was that they had been sort of resigned to the cheese box of 80s nostalgia. So the fact that this guy could jam with a number of different credible musicians, that was cool. But when it was, I always, to me, I always compare that to, I, I mention this all the time, but in the Roy Orbison black and white night, when uh, they do like a 10 minute version of Pretty Woman and some like absolute Nashville session legend whose name I don't know, never knew, never will know, is trading uh, lead guitar licks with Bruce Springsteen. And it's like, Bruce, Bruce, yeah. just go back yeah. and sing some backup vocals, buddy. Yeah. You're a lot Aubrey of things, S. but you're Aubrey not S. this. But, you know, it's so funny because you're, you're right. When we watch those uh, Daryl's House stuff, you'll see, like, all the, you know, these guys going there, puppy-eyed, and they're so excited, whether it's Chris Daughtry or, or Pat Monahan, and they sing the melodies as they were sung. Yeah. And Daryl's been doing such, like, his own variations for so long, it was such a breath of fresh air to hear him done live perfectly again. So, I, I, oh, I, I that's so, so right on, Tully. Here's something I find really, really interesting, really, really fascinating. So Meatloaf, Meatloaf makes Bad Out of Hell, and it's this unlikely success story, breaks all the rules, sells all the records, is probably, I'm sure it's a diamond record, 10, 10 times platinum. And then there's this pressure, obviously, for Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, his collaborator, songwriter, to follow it up. And I think it was even one of these shows that we did. We've been doing these for less than a year. Meatloaf is supposed to make the follow-up. He's not up to it. He's had a nervous breakdown and so jim steinman makes a completely forgotten solo record because he's really good at writing meatloaf songs less good at singing meatloaf songs so i was very very surprised to find out that boy the record the the the, the industry just churned at such a rate in those days nowadays you'll wait 10 years for a crazy singer to make a follow-up record here's meatloaf six months after he was too crazy to make a follow-up album, <laughs> making another album of more songs Jim Steinman wrote since Jim had already released the first batch that he wrote to be the follow-up to Bat Out of Hell. And maybe if they had just gotten these two albums down to one and right. waited a year, they could have had something that wouldn't have made Meatloaf um, a, an album-level uh, one-hit wonder. Yeah. Until until no, the nineties. No, no, you're right. You're right. And, and I think, you know, people were trying to catch lightning in a bottle and things were changing so quickly in the early eighties. So I think people didn't have a short shelf life. You know, I yeah. think people started seeing the legacy acts uh were, were sort of falling off, you know what I mean? The Manhattan transfers and those guys, they weren't coming yes. along to the party in the eighties. So I think if you had this massive success in the seventies, you were just trying to keep it going, and I think that's what happened to me, Love. The album said, especially if this came out, what, in September, like you said, this yeah. is a Christmas product, all right? Yeah. So the label said, we need something in the stores, Meatloaf, for Christmas, and this is what he did. And I don't believe I've ever heard this before, uh, a, a duet between Meatloaf and Cher. I've never heard this either, and I can't wait to. Dead Ringer for Love.
heard these moves before, but here they are again with Cher. You know, they, they work well together. I yeah, mean, you do. know, Meat Meat has got a big, big voice, and he yeah. will he will just swallow you a whole. You know what I mean? But Cher is right there trading blows. They both have a dramatic background. Yeah. Um didn't Meatloaf put out a movie around this time? That movie yeah. Roadie? Now, yep. is there's nothing in conjunction with this, right? I mean, is that a reason why there was another you know, and was Cher in Roadie? I mean, I know people are yelling at the radio right now or their podcast. No, 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 no. We're going we're going pretty deep. So a combination of touring, drugs, and exhaustion caused him to <laughs> That's a trifecta right there. To lose his voice. That's when um Steinman recorded the album Bad for Good and wrote this this new album. And yeah, after uh okay, so while 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 Steinman is making the album that could be the follow-up to Bat Out of Hell, despite having no voice and being burnt out from touring and um being addicted to drugs, Meatloaf plays the lead role in the movie Roadie, which had cameos by Debbie Harry. Roy, Roy Orbison and Hank Williams Jr., um, but was in a box office flop. That's the bad news. The good news is, while making that, he got his voice back, got off drugs, started playing softball, and started work <laughs> on a new album. Nineteen eighty one was nineteen eighty one was a busy year for Meatloaf. I was saying because that was all part of it. I mean, but. You know what's weird? That that song sounds as good as any Meat Love song I've ever heard. I'm surprised it wasn't bigger, especially with the Cher factor. But let's be honest, Cher was, you know, Cher was another superstar falling off the other side of the early 80s clip. Took her a while to get her feet, uh, you know, planted in the 80s and where and where she fit in, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it she wasn't was more ways away. She was still a ways away from the G-string on the, uh, the battleship, you know? Yeah, she had not yet turned back time. That's right. If... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think the sound was there. I have to think the hooks weren't there. There just wasn't like an actual classic two out of three ain't bad. Because it's yeah, the, you're right, but every meatloaf song's like tell me I'm it had all the elements of a meatloaf jammy jam, but maybe that wasn't what time it was, you know? Yeah, things yeah, yeah. things went stale quickly in the early eighties, as we know. And it took ninety two to yeah. get meatloaf back on track. So, you know, maybe yep. ninety one. I take it back, ninety one. Barry Manilow is, I, I don't know, <laughs> I, I guess, is this the end for Barry Manilow? Because I, because I, I, here, I'll play the song. I, I know, I, I don't know Barry Manilow at all, and I know this song. And maybe the old songs will bring back the old times. Maybe the old lines will sound new. Maybe she'll Everyone's mom's favorite singer in 1981. I, I, I know that song, and I don't recall him having successful even adult contemporary songs beyond that. I would have guessed that was from the 70s. Yeah, I, I, I would have too. Um, but I think this is what he was trading on. And Barry didn't get the message about production style change at all. I mean, like no. you said, that could have came straight out of 74. That could have came off the Mandy record. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, I guess when some things aren't broke, like the ACDC factor, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And Barry Manilow, they want to hear what, what they, you know, what, what 
fans want to hear what Barry does. Uh, I think the Coca Cabana days are over, and Barry's like, you know, I'm just going to ride my my ride uh, Horizon out to, to Vegas. But you know, Barry Barry Manilow is still alive. He's still performing live, and it seems to me like that was probably his last gasp in '81, which is very strange because he didn't have he didn't have many hits after that. That's for sure, you know. But it always was a relevant touring entity, you know. Yeah, maybe when you weren't. I think it, it, there's a real advantage to never having been all that cool in the first place. Because when when you have the cool fans, the cool fans are always ready to turn on you if you don't manage to evolve into eternal cool, a la Chrissy Hind. Yeah. You know, um, when you weren't cool in the first place, nobody cares. You just keep you keep on Barry Manilowing to in Las Vegas and Atlantic City until everyone who ever bought one of your records dies, pretty much. No, you're or, or you done. You know, you're yeah, right. right. So, uh, and, and, and you're right. So, he, you know, he just uh, you're right. It, it almost became sort of cool to like Barry Manilow, you know, after the stink of whatever you're doing goes away, it almost becomes cool. You know, Barry Manilow now is like non-threatening. Someone said you like Barry Manilow. It's not even ironic. It's like, yeah, I like apple pie, too. It's just an institution at this point. You know what I mean? He belongs to such a such a bygone era. I remember seeing him on it might have if it wasn't a Jerry Lewis telethon, it might as well have been a Jerry Lewis telethon. And this would have been in the 90s. And he would still do um, almost like a Broadway presentation. of yeah. his song. If he's singing a sad song, he'll finish the song with his face frozen in a pose of sadness. And I was right. like, it was so jarring to see that post Nirvana. But that's yeah. where he—that's where Barry got off the train, and and he never saw foot saw uh, fit to ever get back on. No, he lives in that space, and he's happy with it, and it's a big performance shtick, and he knows how to look at the camera, and like he comes from that almost almost like a vaudevillian presence. Yeah, Barry has, you yeah, know? no, it's it's so very he stagey. Did, he did that. Do you remember that concert they did um, in Central Park over the summer that got rained out? Uh, I think Barry was the. I think. Barry was last night. I think it rained on Barry's. Literally, they shut him down. CNN did it. It was for uh, Central Park is back. New York is back. We're going out again. And then like two weeks later, the Delta variant came. But do you remember that concert they did in Central Park over the summer? It got I, remember them, out. No. I remember them talking about you can't take Barry out in, in the rain. People don't need to see Barry Manilow without makeup. Right. And, and Barry right. doesn't. It's funny you mention that, actually, because in this month, September of 1981, this is when the famous Simon and Garfunkel live in Central Park, oh. like a free show. I want to say 500,000 people went to that. And remember, we had Art Garfunkel wearing a, a tuxedo, uh, releasing a, a, a pretty piss poor solo album. Was it a month ago? Two months ago? And he gave up producing. He gave up promoting that record bookie to get back with uh, Paul Simon. And I think didn't HBO wasn't this HBO's coming out party? Maybe, that, maybe. I, I want to say they at least had something to do with the concert, and it was either shown on HBO. I, I don't know. I have I, a, a faint memory of that being. There's some connection between those two. Yeah, no, you might you might well be right because that it's it is odd that that concert has. I, mean, I know about that. I know that Simon and Garfunkel did this great. Why would I know about that? Who cares? You know, yeah. it's not, it's not, it's not Woodstock. It's not Lollapalooza. It's not a generational marker. So yeah, it must've been broadcast because there's a reason the, why that. If there was a half million people in the park. I mean, that was a uh, pretty big to do, especially you were back East then. So I'm sure you, uh, <clears throat> you know, it was a lot of media coverage, but yeah, there's something big about it. I remember it ran on HBO for like a month or something. So I'm going to do a little research on that. 
because <clears throat> I'd like to see it again, to tell you the truth. Altered images. We're into we've we've reached the K Rock. Altered I think they're from Glasgow, aren't they? Scottish. I think I think you might be right. I wanted to. Sometimes there's a song. There's just this one song where you go. For, for you, I'm sure this is a little bit, you know, closer to played out. For me, it's one of those like real. You might hear it once a month on a on a new wave playlist kind of thing. Where I go, God, that song is that song is so good. How could it be possible that a band could make one song that is so charming and not have more songs? I'm gonna go listen to that album. You know what? It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, from our record, Florida, I know it's possible. <laughs> so uh, for to refresh everyone's memory or for the uninitiated, the, as I say, utterly charming altered images uh, and their signature song. The poor man's bell, wow, wow. Yeah, well said there. And yeah, that got a lot of run in the K-Rock phenomenon that we bring up every, every podcast. Um, but, you know, every birthday, it'd be like, you know, Richard Blade would be like, it's Robert Smith from the Karen's birthday today. Here we go. You know, and they play that. So that song got a lot of run. I want to say they had another song, Tully, that was like likable. It's, it's, it's nowhere near the trans in my mind right now, but... Um, yeah, they were definitely uh, known for that wonderful song. And then they were, she was like a pixie-esque. I remember the video. I don't know if you remember the video, but she danced around. Fun, fun. I think from Glasgow. I think they're Glaswegian. You can hear it. I mean, how could how could she not be adorable? She was yeah. everything that was fun and cool about, um, about indie. That era. Yeah, about that era, and and yeah. and all and all you can say looking back is it's really, really, really insane that it took. Um, program directors a couple of years to realize that that was that that was where it was at because there was nothing weird there was nothing threatening about that whatsoever that's just a joyous you know uh, pop song with all the edges cut off well i agree but if you're looking back through the lens through 81 that is kind of the production's kind of punky i mean look, it is we're coming off rod stewart so like I know right now, looking back through the lenses of what we know, oh, yeah. yeah, welcome to the pop party. But that was considered very new wave, very independent college radio material, you know. So I know what you're saying, but I remember back then it had, it had like a punky feel, you know. It's just so funny that punk rock of all, like, it's it's very, very easy to listen to um, Black Sabbath, you know, the original Black Sabbath album, and to say, yeah, I can absolutely see why this was threatening to people and why this had yeah. no place in pop radio. It's just the fact that classic punk rock at its core is, uh, you know, it's it's a bunch of girl group, one, four, five pop songs. It's just so funny that the face of, um, you know, lock up, lock up your daughters, hide the children could have been, hey, ho, let's go. Yeah, no, no, you're right about that. And I think a lot, of, obviously, like you mentioned, had a lot of imagery. And like when, of course. when punk rock first came out, 
People were confused about anything new. So it was dangerous to be a punker. You know, like, look, Sex Pistols were not that palatable. People say, you know, in retrospect, they said like the Who or something or the Faces. You know, there, there was a, a snarl there. Johnny, oh, yeah. Johnny Rock's voice was it. But also Orange County, Southern California punk rock was like, you know, it was hardcore black black flag, you know, uh, Circle Jerks, uh, uh, TSOL. Those bands were, they, they were aggressive and scary. It didn't, it didn't take on the 90 sheen for a while with the production and like, you know, the, the Green Day records coming along were just sounded like, you know, it, it also like punk rock, the older punkers grew up and it became more palatable. So it took a little bit of time for it to become non-threatening. You, you know what I mean? I was kind of, I'm old enough totally, unfortunately, to remember, you know, but you have got, you know, there was one or two punkers in each high school out here in Southern California and they got their ass kicked regularly, regularly. Where are you on um, on Gary Newman? And two uh, a big Gary, big Gary Newman fan. Okay, all right. So let's talk. So Gary Newman, for people know the song "Cars." It's in some ways a very a very Gary Newman song, and in other ways, it's it's this weird anomaly. He's a guy. It's fair to say that he took a piece of the David Bowie thing and tried to bring it into a. He tried to bring David Bowie into New Wave. You're right. He took David Bowie and Kraftwerk and, and met them at, like, you know, at Pop Boulevard and made this perfect piece of popping. Look, I think uh, Cars, Gary Newman's Cars, is, is a lot of people's first introduction into the Moog, into the keyboards, and that, that synth world. And yeah. to make a song so palatable that was easily likable, that, that was quite a feat on his, on his part, especially when you consider his catalog songs like Replicas, Our Friends Electric, they're more taxing and they're more they're 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 gonna test your uh, your your likability factor when cars is just such a sweet nugget of pop perfection. So Gary Newman <clears throat> looked look, you know what he looked like when uh 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 why am I blanking on his name? Gerard from My Chemical Romance. Yeah when he when he cut his hair and bleached it, he was just doing yeah. a Gary Newman thing, a straight Gerard, up Gary Newman right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and he also had the, the eyeliner and all that. And he was, it be, and he had the English teeth and all that, which were, you know, cookie. <laughs> he did. He did. You can occasionally find those in New Jersey where he's from. Um, <laughs> but Gary Newman, in a very Bowie esque turn, by the time he releases the album, and I mean, shit, I mean, when did, okay, when does Cars come out? Because that's an 80s song, isn't it? Oh, yeah, well, definitely. It's 80, I'd say 81 is the latest. So we're, we're maybe, in, maybe we're 80. in 81. I know, but is this off car? Is cars off this record? No, no. Wait, I'm really, really, really confused now. Cars might be 79 even. Yes, as a matter of fact, yeah. Car. Well, it came out in September of 1979, so I guess you can see how by the time it gets yeah. over here. It got his legs in the 80s. Yeah. It's, an, it's an 80s song. So we're yeah. talking about two, two uh, three albums late i guess he had he had already announced that he was going to retire from live performing and now he's all of a sudden a guy who's wearing a suit and a fedora and um he is making songs like stormtrooper in drag <laughs> <laughs> Take the smile on your face when the 
that's an evolution. Yeah, you know, I, look, he's not swinging for the fences with that title, that's for sure. No. Um, and this is after the success of Cars, and this is more, this is more uh, reminiscent of what Gary Newman's catalog sounds like. A little more right. plotting, not as like fast foody as Cars is, and it's going to take you. It's going to it's going to test your listenability. But you can really see where Peter Murphy from Bauhaus got his vocal stylings from. Oh, I interesting. Mean, I, that's what I was catching from now. I'm not really familiar with that song, but I'm yeah. I'm getting a lot of the low ends and the way he kind of the reflections, you know, on the affectations. And I, I just really noticed that right there. So very influential Gary Newman, very underrated for his influence, certainly on what was to come. Yeah, and he got his due eventually. That guy's a bit of a legend now. There's there's plenty of uh, incredibly cool festivals that will gladly have Gary Newman play the last show on Sunday night and acknowledge that even if every you know not every kid in the audience owns a bunch of his records or streams a bunch of his records, um, all the bands that are <laughs> that were playing before well, him for yeah. for damn sure did. Yeah, he'll get those great sweet Coachella spots, and everybody's saying my favorite act is Gary Newman, and you know he's got he's, he's carved out a nice career. There's a wonderful documentary about Gary Newman out huh. there. Even if you're not a fan, it has a lot of compelling uh, footage. Um, and uh, yeah, no, he, very, very nice guy. He did a he did a gig once with Royal Machines, uh, one of my other bands. Yeah, um, and was a lovely dude. Just very easy, easy to get along with. No, no ego trips, no nothing. Uh, it was one of the highlights of, uh, of the evening. Well, one of the highlights of these episodes for me is invariably when we get to like the soul R and B area which is to me it's some of the most vibrant stuff that's that's going yes. on at this time and um god i just I, I say it every time but it just needs to be said every time i'll remind everybody all of this classic music came out in one stinking month in 1981 and it was i, I said the same thing last month and i'll say the same thing next month because boy was uh it, it was just a a veritable cornucopia of stuff coming from all different angles including this uh perennial classic right here if you really don't want to dance by standing on the wall get your back up off the wall tell me how you gonna do it if you really don't want to dance by standing on the wall get your back up off the wall i heard all the people saying get down on it come on and Oh, just so many, so many parts, so many things, so much joy. It just keeps delivering. Yeah. Skip Martin and the Daz Band, which would go on to win a Grammy for that song, Get Down On It. Um, also a song that just never goes out of style. You throw no. that out at any party, punk rock, R&B, it's, it's celebration. You know what I mean? It's that, but it's the cooler celebration, you know? Wait, what did you say the artist was? Skip Martin? Isn't that, uh, oh no, I was thinking, uh, that that's cool in the game. It's cool in the game, yeah, yeah. My bad, my bad. I, 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 I'm getting older and I was getting confused with, uh, let's whip it, baby. And I was not sure. <laughs> I was figuring out of my head, which is coming soon. Yeah, no, that that is such a, you know, I mean, cool in the gang was just ladies night, get down on it and celebration. Going down Broadway, those are three of the best party songs of all time. 
Right, that have never been... <clears throat> the, the, so the first time you hear that song in September of 1981, you're like, yep, that's good. Keep playing that okay. every hour on yeah. the hour. Yep. And they've never been not cool. And you, I mean, you could draw an incredibly short and direct line from that, which is, you know, granted, it's music for, for four quadrants. That's music for you yeah. and your mom and your grandma to dance to. And, right. and, and Nate Dogg would be doing something very remarkably similar to that in Absolutely. a very, very, very different context, not to, not, you know, t 10 years later, when that should right. have been the most uncool thing in the world. It actually yeah. became even cooler than it was to begin with. That's right. And, and that's another song that really is benefiting, and a band that benefit from amazing production. It's so you good. You know, uh, the horns, the vocals, the, the, the bass lines, everything is perfect on it. And it's just, it's, 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 it's a masterpiece. And that's why we, you know, it's like, I just said, you put that on anytime, any party today, everybody's up and dancing. People who don't dance, dance to that song. It's undeniable. It's undeniable. Yeah, you might even be able to get me danced to dance to that. And that oh, is, you'd uh, be dancing a storm. Totally. That is the ultimate compliment. Um, <laughs> elsewhere, uh, I feel like James Ingram, what, we already had him making hit songs on behalf of Quincy Jones, if memory serves, a couple mm -hmm. of months back. And now he is um, lending his hit-making touch to this classic from Patty Austin. Let me put my arms around you, this was So good. So, so good. good. You know, I love on that. Come to me. There's a big reverby, dreamy effect on it. Yeah. And then it, go then it goes to James Ingram voice, and it's so strong and big and cuts through everything. It's such a beautiful production choice. It is those flourishes of, I don't even know if it was a wind chime that somebody's yeah. like that very the, insanely disco y touches and unfortunately they were destined they were already on borrowed time here in 1981 because they were so identified with that were so instrumental in creating that that dreamy you know it's like um they'll talk about in movie making soft focus that was always the classic thing about like when an actress got older and older they would literally be right. sticking they'd be sticking gauze in front of the, the, the camera civil shepherd moonlighting effect yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly that's like the audio equivalent of soft focus and you know what oh. there's a there's a time and a place for soft focus and and that's it that's it right there that's so well put it's beautiful but what a great choice it works so well you know Yep. Um, we're going to talk about some, some metal and some rock stuff to round this out. But first, what, I, I, I keep on having this, um, this Berenstain, Berenstain Bears effect all over the place. You know, you know that, that thing, right, where everyone thought it was the Berenstain Bears, and it turns out it always was Berenstain Bears. And you go back and you look at it and you go, how did we collectively have this delusion? And people say, well, there's the proof that we're living in a simulation. Well, <laughs> to, to a lesser extent, that's where I am on. Am I even saying her name right? Joan Armatrading? Yeah, Joan Armatrading. Yep. Okay, right. So... I see her name now pop up as like, oh, she's playing this festival. And I go, okay, that must be some hot new chick that I don't know anything about. And then I look into her and I go, no, this is a, this is an older woman. And here she is in 1981 
releasing music and I go, oh, well, I guess I guess the story was that she was just making stuff and no one really noticed it. Like, no, she was receiving awards. For, like, mm -hmm. does everybody know Joan Armitrading and I just somehow missed her entirely? No, I think she's like, you know, it's like those in the no-no. She's a musician's musician. You know, she's gone through a... I, it, I, I don't... I want to say she's not even American. I want to say she's from Australia, but I'm not sure. Yeah, let's find um, out. Yeah. But but she's probably from New York, right? I mean, but I, for some reason. <laughs> she is British. She's British. Okay. <laughs> she had she had a little bit of a hit in the 80s with, I love it when you call me name. And she, she had a little bit of a, uh, a little new wave 80s thing, but she's at heart a folk singer. Give me a guitar and get out there and do my thing, you know? And I'm led to believe I think her guitar playing is also a thing. People, she's she's yeah. well regarded as a singer and a songwriter and as a guitar player. And just to give people some context of where this is coming from and fitting in, the album. This album is it's her it's already her seventh studio album in 1981, and this was a big hit in England. It was produced by Steve Lillywhite, who's gigantic. Yeah, and um, Thomas Dolby plays synthesizer on this album and Andy Partridge of XTC, who I guess this is pre, well, no, they were already doing stuff in, in No, they were doing, they were cracking. This, yeah, he, stopped, he stopped touring because he, he had that nervous breakdown. So I think he was just doing studio stuff. That's right, that's right. Yeah, making plans for Nigel and since it's working yeah. over time, that's before that, right. So here's, I guess everybody, uh, if you don't know, now you know, here's, I'm By the lucky. way, that, that, that assemblage, uh, assemblage of musicians right there this is my point. She's always been a musician's musician. You know yeah. what I mean? People right. uh, yeah, in the know know. And here's, uh, for those who don't know what she sounds like. Not my thing, you know what I mean? Uh, you, you know, it doesn't grab me. I don't know about you, Tully. That's very, very, very much my thing. Once again, you go, oh, she's like an acoustic songwriter, and I go, okay, okay, I kind of know what I'm, what to expect here. That sounded like a good single from the Motels. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I've seen her go out and do concerts with, you know, with just an acoustic guitar and herself, but she had this like, you know, new wave obviously turned as well. Yeah. And she had a hit, like in, like I said, in the mid 80s, maybe late 80s, where she was on MTV with this, you know, kind of rocky type song. So had an interesting career, been around forever. Everybody loves her, but I really can't name a song, you know? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, then I'm glad we're sort of in the same place here because I feel like all of a sudden, if you don't know who she is, you are officially admitting that you're not cool at all. Yeah, and I right. had I had no idea that we were talking about a 45 year artist, <laughs> right? And I didn't expect her to sound like the Motels, so I'm just befuddled on like layers and layers of of, of confusion for me here. Luckily, I will always have um, uh, Baltimore, Maryland's own Kicks, and yes. I know. And I know exactly what I'm getting from Kix, and this is where Kix begins. And Kix, you know, ended up having a nice career for themselves, continue to have a very nice career for themselves. But 
They were kind of a classic, also ran. They were there before all the other, almost all the other bands that hit and outside of the one very, very, very good ballad, Don't Close Your Eyes, were never able to translate that into the same success. There's lots of bands who, frankly, probably listened to Kicks and took cues from Kicks while making songs that ended up being much, much bigger hits. Kicks, um, kind of in the beginning, once it became clear, you either do the hair metal thing or else you may as well just go home. A little bit more of a power pop band. Yeah, I mean, I always looked at them as like an ACDC type band. For and they sure. had that, you know, their required hair metal ballad. They kind of put them in a hair metal, ballad, a hair metal genre. Which is fair. They were yeah. rocking it, the aesthetic and all that. Yeah. But they're always a little bit more to me. They're just a great rock band. They're still great live. Really good. Steve Whitehead, the lead singer, uh, can, it still has got amazing pipes. He's 65, sounds better than ever. Yes. I'm curious, Kelly, I, I didn't know they were their first release was 81. Is, is this on Atco? Is this on Atlantic Records in 81? Let's, let's the, see the, about that. So I, I, I picked up I picked a copy of their second album, uh, Cool Kids at uh, my local Kmart when I was uh, in in the late 80s. That was the one that famously um, Beavis and Butthead watched the music video for Cool Kids, and Butthead said, if these are the cool kids, I'd hate to see the uncool kids. <laughs> and just ruin their career. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. That's the end of Kicks. Uh, their <laughs> self-titled debut album was released in 1981, on, not even just Atco, they're, they're on Atlantic Records. They're on Atlantic, yeah, because I knew they're on Atlantic, they're on our label. Um, I, I, that's amazing. Atlantic stuck by them for a while because, you know, uh, Don't Close Your Eyes didn't hit to like 87, 88. So, you know, those are back in the days when they supported bands. That's right. That's right. They were uh, several albums away from that, and they were already, they were a big touring attraction in Maryland. They had a huge home base there. Um, and uh, yeah, and the song that seems to be the song from the first Kicks album is charmingly titled Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I like it, man. I need a That's a fucking great hook. That's a great pop rock hook. They were right. a fun, fun, fun band. You know, they matured and it, yeah, it did become hair metal, ACDC kind of stuff. The 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 really exuberant, energetic early kicks is it's a fun That's band. Popping off the pops off the the, the the needle. You can hear it and I just think that it suffers some production not being that great. With all due respect, I mean. I'm hearing it over your thing, but yeah. does it sound great in your head? It just—I mean, it's rocking. It's got—it's got an innocence, a youthful exuberance to it, and that's what I love about rock and roll. You know, I think it's just got the thing that most bands had who signed with a major label in the early '80s, which is they put them in a studio and they, you know, put up some soundproofing so that things weren't bleeding onto everything, and they got a clean, true, unspectacular yeah. recording. Yeah. You could say that about almost every metal band's first album. You're right, especially in '81. You know, <laughs> we were still a ways away from the the mutt lang, multi layered production, gigantic, and that's just that's just that a little Billy Squire in there, a little Motorhead, a little, a little good stuff in there, man. I got uh, three more songs. Alice Cooper 
was at the in September of 1981 embarking on what would be an unintentional trilogy, which is the three albums he does not recall making. <laughs> Bless his heart. What was the first one called? The first album is Special Forces. Hmm. That is such an obvious like metal rock title, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, let me see. Was this just like four way into new wave? Remember that song Clones? He has a song called Clones that sounds like it could have come from Flock of Seagulls. And that was played on K-Rock a lot during the K-Rock phenomenon years. Right. I want to say that might be uh, that might be a little bit later. The All Music Review says it was his most stripped down and straightforward uh, work since his classic early 70s stuff. But without his original band backing him up and helping him with songwriting, it became an intriguing yet uneven set. Mm. So uh, we have got I think the new wave stuff. Guys tended to do that when the coke got really, really, really heavy, and then all of a sudden they decided it looked it looked good to be like corpse-like and to get. That's right. There's something about cocaine and keyboards when you can really synthesize stuff, and that can really be on time. You know. Uh, let's see. That's uh, I do, unfortunately. It seems like the song is "Who Do You Think We Are." You know, that's interesting, and I, I just checked because I was curious. This is after Clones. Clones came out in 1980. Okay. And was, it was like kind of a weird little new AD, real right turn for Alice Cooper because it was so different from his earlier material. It was really a new wave song. So here's a man struggling to find, where do I fit in this rock world? I am an absolute rock legend, but I, I took a big right turn with my Clones new wave single, it sounds like he's trying to get back to rock a little bit. There's a little bit of like theatrics, a little bit of novelty in there. I, I, it's, it's interesting to hear that we're, and we're also about seven, eight years away from Poison still. You know what I mean? The Desmond oh, yeah. Child, Alice Cooper Poison thing. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear him struggle to stay alive as an artist, you know? Yeah, man. I, I met, you know, I interviewed Desmond Child and I, I, I love this song. It's the last song on that Desmond, the, uh, the, the album that he did with them, Trash. And I, I was like, do you yeah. remember writing this? It's called Hell is Living Without You. To me, it was the second best song on the album after the single. And Desmond Child's like, nah, I have no, I have no idea. That, that means absolutely. Yeah, no idea. Yeah. I mean, I write, write songs a day, you know? I write 15 songs a day. I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't believe that you're, one of my favorite songs could be a song that you made that you don't even know you made. He said it happened that, to me. That just, song was a single, right? It was a video single. I think. No, I don't. I don't think so. No, oh, boy, it's a shame that I know this, but um, "Spark in the Dark." Uh, you might have <laughs> had you. You might have had the song trashed the title because it was a John Bon Jovi. Uh, I, I, I'm sure something John Bon Jovi doesn't play for if he, his daughters, if he has any. A deeply misogynistic piece of you know, typical of the of that era. Uh, no, 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 I don't, he, I don't. Does, he does have a daughter, by the way, so you're probably right. Uh, I'm happy to say I'm playing Alice Cooper's charity December 4th in Phoenix. Are you? Got, 
Josh from the Queens of Stone Age, myself, Ed Roland from Collective Soul. Uh, should be a fun group because he's so cool. I got to do one of those shows where I play with, you know, Alice Cooper, the guy from Collective Soul. And uh, he was just such a sweet guy. A lot of times when you play these events, you know, they're like three hours long. And the headliner comes at the end because he doesn't want to sit there through like a Mark McGrath set. Alice Cooper was there early with his wife, talking to everybody, watched everybody set. Such a gentleman. And he invited me to his charity he's been doing for like 20, 25 years. So I'll be going out there December 4th. So if you're in the Phoenix area, come help people out at Rock Dallas Cooper. That's so cool. I, I saw that clip. I don't know if it was the same one. I imagine it was. You played something with him, and, and I want to say Florida. So cool. Exact, exactly right, Florida. <laughs> and we did, uh, I think it was School's Out. School's Out, exactly. Me and uh, Emerson from uh, Tonic and uh, Kevin from Better Nezra. So rad. Uh, I don't even remember why I put this band on the list. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just so endlessly amused by um the state of uh not thrash but like poppy heavy what's going to become hair metal in this era and uh i guess yeah. there was just something there was something about raven that really uh sunk its teeth into me you're nodding your head you you have some recollection of raven and perhaps their album rock until you drop Listen, these bands had to walk, the Anvils, the Ravens, so, you know, the Poisons and Molly Cruz and Cinderella could run, you know, and that's, but, you know, Raven and Anvil, they got stuck in this world where they, they weren't Judas Priest, they, they didn't really have the hits, but Raven had a big, big push, I think they were on Atlantic Records, too, if, I, if, I, if I'm correct, but they just never had that one breakthrough, you know, they just never did, but they, they were an acquired taste Raven, but the vocals were a little uh, interesting. Okay, we'll see about that. This is their first album. They may have gone major later on. This was released on um, in the UK on Neat Records. Mm. Yep. I see what you're saying about the vocals. Well, to me, that's because I'm alive. I'm really hot. You know, it's, it's not that far away from live wire. You know, the drums are wow. on the floor. For sure. For sure. You know, so, you know, Vince Neil was picking that up going, wait a minute. Maybe I can sing for somebody. <laughs> 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 yeah. As long as you don't yeah, ask. Yeah. Not, not should, but can, can I? Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. Right. Also, when you have those, yeah, you know, those those screams in your song. It's usually a padding for we have nothing here. Like there's not a medley, you know, it's not a melody there. There, that, that's been my. But to me, I'm in when I hear that metal scream. But it's kind of a banshee wail. It's a call to my youth. See, I'm wondering when um, uh, we got to be getting to Too Fast for Love, the, at least the self-released version of the first Motley right. Crue album pretty soon. That's 81. I know that's 81, and we've done, yeah, we've, we're but, nine months deep. So he can't, I mean, Vince is already going, yeah, oh, on yeah, stage yeah. at this point. He's doing that at the Starwood when this record comes out, because yeah. Too Fast for Love, they got to be in the studio about now in, in 81. Yeah, you know, I, I am shocked too, especially because it was their first release that was going to come out in the fourth quarter, which is the you know, the holiday thing. And for a new band, you don't release the fourth quarter because you get swallowed up. But I guess they believe in the crew that much. I, 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 
I don't think when they went and pressed 1,000 copies of their self-released album that anybody was thinking about, you know, strategizing about how are we going to how are we going to compete with th- that new Billy Joel live record. Good, good point. I'm looking back to the uh, you know Motley Crue uh, 30 years later optics or 40 years later. Yeah, within about 18 months, Nikki would be fully on board with everything that you're talking oh, yeah. about. And then some. And then finally, I wanted to wrap up with uh, an act called Tangerine Dream, which I guess I've heard of them, but I also, I don't know, it sounds like it could have been just like another one of these forgotten metal bands on on Atlantic. I am led to believe, based on their Wikipedia, two things that I find remarkable. They have released over 100 albums. Until this one was released? No, 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 no. In general, in in total, and that's because they just make they make moody, atmospheric kind of music. It's kind of it's easier to 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 crank that kind. Does the name Tangerine Dream mean anything to you? Well, it means the same thing you did. At least you said. I go. I I I I absolutely heard the name. Was it? Is it a name of a record? Is it the name of a band? I mean, so I'm in the same space. Yeah. Was it a Michelle Pfeiffer movie? I, well, I can't believe a band has released a hundred records, and I don't really know if they're a band or not. <laughs> yeah. So they're making more soundscapes, I think, than than um, than stuff that you or I would have been listening to. But I am led to believe the reason why I leave it here is because I am led to believe that it's an acknowledged fact that the soundtrack stuff for Stranger Things. Because we all know we listen to that, and that's you know, '80s is all hell. Well, to, yeah. to to tighten the screws on that a little bit, apparently it's Tangerine Dream is all hell, and uh, and and this is an album that they put out. Uh, it's a self-titled album. You only get one of those. I don't know what they call the other ninety-nine. This song, <laughs> <laughs> this song is called Exit. I can hear that. But you know what I think? I, I, I think they just, it's almost like they just were jamming in the studio. Like, you know what I mean? Like, is that really a, was that really a co- comprehensive song when they're going, okay, we got it. Dude, let's just jam and just record it. That's why they got a hundred records. You know what I mean? Yeah. 100 records aren't going to write themselves. So no, well, actually they may sometimes if you to go jam, but, uh, that's quite an accomplishment, but I hear the Stranger Things thing for sure. You know yeah, I mean? without a doubt. Elsewhere in September of 1981, Ron Wood made a solo record. Uh, Heaven 17 are getting started. Triumph are there. I think it may have been the debut album from Reba McIntyre. It kind of sounds like Reba McIntyre to me. And, uh, oh, you know, it was kind of a fun one. Maybe something that you would have been familiar with. Um, the Creatures, a, a side project from Suzy Sue. I knew of them. I was a huge Susan the Banshees fan. Still am. Yeah. Um, but what, what was the name of the single? Okay. Um, that, 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 there's only a couple songs on the album. Uh, I think the song the song is a Wild Things, which is the um, also the title track, I believe. Wasn't it like everybody in Susan the Banshees still is named themselves the creatures? Like I think Budgie was still playing drums. Like well, Steve was Ben. 
Yeah, no, you're, you're pretty much you're pretty much right. You know what it was supposedly is if memory serves, it's something just like this. Susie and the Banshees are like rehearsing, and half the band goes outside for a smoke break, and the drummer starts playing a drum thing, and she starts singing over it, and they realize they've got a different thing. Got yeah. it. So they put out an EP. That's I'll, I'll play a little bit, and then I'll let you go because it's. I, yeah. I thought it was actually pretty cool. I'm planning on spending more time listening to Susie Sue. Uh, wailing over uh, over drums yeah I liked it the first time I listened to it. There's definitely, uh, I wonder if the Yeah, Yeah, Yes did not own a copy of that. Oh, well, that's that's really well well said and a good insight there. But imagine the other guys coming back in going, wait, I got a part for that. I, I just, I, I heard a guitar part and a bass part for that. They're like, nah, nah, we're good, homie. We're the creatures. You're out. <laughs> we're the creatures now. <laughs> that was the most eventful cigarette break of your life. Totally. <laughs> and while you're out having a smoke, we have a new band. And you're fired. <laughs> All right, that's everything I think that's worth talking about from September of 1981. So um, with that, we can take our leave, and I will let you go. And we thank you, as always, for your time and your insight. So much fun, totally. Always fun. Ready to October. Let's hit it. All right. Hopefully Too Fast for Love is coming soon. If not, maybe it already came. Knowing the crew, it already came. Oh. I'm going to make it my business to (laughs) – I feel like you know something I don't know about Motley. No, I don't. I don't. You give me too much credit. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, I'll get to the bottom of Too Fast for Love. That and much more next time we do this. Thanks, bud. Thank you, brother. Hello, friend. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed spending time with Mark and myself. I know I sure enjoyed hanging out with Mark and myself. Hopefully there'll be way more of him on the way in the uh, in the weeks to come here on The Tully Show. Before I let you go, let me remind you, I got my Patreon. If you want to hear me talking to myself, that's patreon.com slash Mike Tully. And if you want to hear me talking to Jesse May Peluso on a weekly basis, check out our brand new Patreon, patreon.com slash The Deuce Podcast. Whether I see you here next or see you there, I look forward to seeing you soon. <laughs>